Hi there, everybody. I'm John Allen, and this is Last Week in the Church. Today, I'm going to be breaking down for you four major stories from the last seven days. The Pope is going to Iraq. We've had an overhaul, or is it just a makeover, at the Vatican's financial watchdog, a court battle over refugees, human rights, and international law, and the death of one of Italy's happiest memories. Stick around. All right, we begin today with news this week that the, the, from the Vatican that the Pope is confirming that he is going to travel to Iraq March 5th through the 8th. This, of course, is the first trip Pope Francis will have made post-coronavirus pandemic, uh, although the pandemic is hardly over. Uh, and it is also the first time a pope will be traveling to Iraq. There is a sense in which this trip uh, has been being prepared for more than 20 years. Uh, it was 1999 when St. John Paul II announced his intention to travel to Iraq as part of the great Jubilee year of 2000. He wanted to retrace the footsteps of the Bible, beginning with Ur of the Chaldees, the traditional birthplace of Abraham. Uh, then go to Egypt, where, of course, the Holy Family had gone uh, in exile, uh, and then finish up in Jordan, the Palestinian territories, and Israel. Uh, however, uh, that trip, uh, scheduled for 2000, was called off because negotiations with the government of then-Iraqi President Saddam Hussein broke down. Three years later, John Paul sent a special emissary to Baghdad in Iraq as part of the Vatican's last-ditch effort to head off the 2003 U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. John Paul dispatched emissaries to both Baghdad and Washington to try to promote cooler heads. Uh, unfortunately, cooler heads did not prevail. Uh, that invasion proceeded. Uh, it, of course, left Iraq a shambles and has created political, economic, and security conditions that have prevented any other papal trip uh, in the years since. Finally, however, Pope Francis has announced that come hell or high water, uh, he is going to Iraq in March. He's going to visit Baghdad, the national capital. He will go to Erbil, the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan. He will visit Mosul, which was the capital of the ISIS caliphate, self-proclaimed caliphate, uh, in 2014, from 2014 to 2016. And in a hugely symbolically significant stop, he is going to be going to Karakosh. Karakosh is one of the traditionally Christian villages on the Nineveh Plains in northern Iraq. That region is considered the cradle of Iraqi Christianity, and Karakosh is considered the sort of centerpiece uh, of that once thriving Christian belt uh, across the northern part of Iraq. It was all but destroyed, shut down, uh, shut up uh, by the ISIS uh, colonization from 2014 to 2016. Uh, but in the years since, it has been rebuilt, and slowly but surely, uh, a share of those Christians are returning uh, and attempting to bring that village back to life. Therefore, the Pope's presence there speaks volumes uh, about his mission uh, on this trip. This outing to Iraq has at least three levels of enormous interest and significance, and we'll briefly unpack each. They are the logistical, the political, and the pastoral. We begin with the logistical. Not only does a pope traveling to Iraq 
uh, pose massive security issues because, let's face it, it is not like the jihadists and the remnants uh, of that ISIS caliphate have gone anywhere. Uh, and obviously, the presence of a pope uh, on what they would consider territory that belonged to the caliphate is, in a sense, provocative. Uh, and therefore, uh, it means that the security dimension of this trip uh, is much greater, thornier, more complicated than normal. But of course, this is also a trip occurring in the middle of a global pandemic. Yes, uh, regulators in certain countries have approved a vaccine. It would seem that in early 2021, those vaccines will start to roll out. But it is hardly as if the majority of people on the planet will have been inoculated by next March, and almost certainly not in Iraq, an impoverished country, where even if they had the money to avoid the vaccines, they don't have the medical infrastructure necessarily to deliver them effectively. Uh, and so the pandemic will still be with us. It will follow Pope Francis. It will be waiting for him uh, when he arrives in Iraq. And that obviously complicates things as well. Although there is a sense in which the one problem here arguably helps with the other. That is because of the pandemic, it is unlikely Pope Francis is going to be holding big public events. There probably will not be massive outdoor open air masses for tens of thousands of people. There probably will not be large scale youth gatherings on a hillside someplace. This is probably going to be a much lower key affair. He will probably celebrate the liturgies indoors in a small church with just a handful of local faithful clergy and religious present. Uh, meetings with government officials will probably be behind closed doors. Uh, and if there's going to be some kind of major rally for local Christians, it's entirely possible that that's going to be live streamed rather than done in person. Now, the fact that this is going to be papal travel on a smaller scale probably makes the security dimension of it all more manageable. All right, the political dimension of this, obviously Pope Francis is going. Uh, to Iraq. Now, this, of course, is officially billed as a pastoral visit, but uh, that's, in a sense, a kind of linguistic ledger domain, because when the Pope travels, there is always a political dimension. Uh, he's going in Iraq to try to accomplish two things. One, to revive the interest of the international community in the reconstruction of Iraq. That interest, of course, is flagged significantly uh, in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, when, frankly, government uh, officials have simply had other fish to fry and limited resources have been tapped for public health purposes, uh, domestic public health purposes rather than international aid and relief. The Pope wants to restart the reconstruction program and of course he wants to deliver a shot in the arm to the local Christian population there that is desperately struggling to make a go of it in the wake of their devastation during the, the ISIS period. Uh, it remains to be seen, of course, how successful Pope Francis is going to be on that front, but it is worth knowing that he really is the only moral point of reference on the global stage right now, even willing to give it a shot. Pastorally, uh, the fate of that Christian community is of overweening importance. I think it is the most dramatic and most underreported Christian story of our time, what has happened on the Nineveh Plains in Iraq over the course of the last decade. This was, a, was the community arguably hardest hit anywhere in the world by virulent anti-Christian hatred uh, in the form of the ISIS caliphate. 
It is also arguably the community that has shown the greatest bravery and resilience in response to that, buoyed by this massive international mobilization, humanitarian mobilization, led largely by private Catholic groups in the United States and Europe. In the United States, we're talking about the Knights of Columbus, uh, the Catholic Near East Welfare Association, Aid to the Church in Need, Catholic Relief Services, all of whom at the beginning, without a dime of government support or taxpayer money, uh, invested huge uh, in helping these Christians rebuild on those villages in the Nineveh Plains. I've called it Dunkirk in reverse. It's every bit as dramatic as the original Dunkirk, only in this case, the aim is not to get people out, it's to help them stay. Uh, and if Pope Francis is able to generate a new wave of support for that end, uh, that alone uh, would, would arguably make this trip worth taking. Keep your eyes on Iraq in March. It is going to be a fascinating tale to tell. Uh, all right, uh, our second story this week. The Vatican announced uh, what it is describing as a significant overhaul of its financial watchdog unit known by its Italian acronym AIF, which stands for Autorita Informazione Finanziaria, AIF, uh, it is now to be known as the Autorita di Supervisione e Informazione Finanziaria, or ASIF. And the idea is that its role is being beefed up. It has been given new powers of supervision over the entities it regulates, which is primarily the Institute for the Works of Religion, or the so-called Vatican Bank. Now, you may recall that in 2020 began with IFE suspended from the Egmont Group, that's the Council of Europe's consortium of national financial intelligence units, because the former president of IFE, a Swiss lawyer by the name of René Bruhlhardt, interestingly, there's an Iraqi connection there because Bruhlhardt rose to fame in 2003 as the chair of the Egmont Group that tracked down ownership of Saddam Hussein's private jet and restored it to the people of Iraq, its rightful owners. Well, in any event, Bruhlhardt, who the Vatican brought in to, to great fanfare uh, as the white knight who was going to make things right, uh, he was run out of town on a rail uh, amid the burgeoning London financial scandal. Uh, the Egmont Group didn't like it because uh, Bruhlhardt's stock remains very high there, so they suspended the Vatican. Finally, the Vatican appointed a new president, and that suspension was lifted. But there was still great suspicion and skepticism about what was actually going on. Now, Moneyvol, which is the Council of, uh, of Europe's uh, anti-money laundering uh, inspection unit, recently completed uh, its latest round of inspection of the Vatican. It's the first time they've been on the ground since the Bruhlhardt debacle happened. They are expected to present their report next April during Moneyvol's plenary assembly in Brussels. That's probably when we will know what grade the Vatican got. Uh, and this matters, and not just from a PR point of view, because if a national actor, and of course the Vatican is an independent sovereign state, if a national actor ends up on blacklists, such as those informally put out by, uh, by Moneyvol, then they can be frozen out of international markets or transaction costs for the transactions they want to carry 
carry out, uh, become significantly higher because the other party will charge much higher due diligence fees to insulate them from any potential risk. So at a time when the Vatican deficit is already ballooning uh, and when they have an unfunded pension crisis that could put the, you know, cause the whole car, house of cards to fall down in 20 years, uh, this is the wrong time for the Vatican to end up on an international blacklist. Uh, and so all eyes will be on that Moneyball meeting and Moneyball report in April. We will know then whether this was a real overhaul or just a cosmetic makeover. Uh, all right, court case. Uh, in Italy, uh, the, close, the figure closest to the kind of profile that Donald Trump has in the United States would be a politician by the name of Matteo Salvini. He is the leader of the populist far-right Lega Party, known, much like Trump, for his anti-immigrant stands, his cultural conservatism. Actually, there are many other parallels between Trump and Salvini. They are both easily the most divisive, polarizing political figure in their countries. Both men are cultural conservatives, despite the fact that both have two divorces uh, on their record. Uh, and uh, Salvini, like Trump, uh, plays to the religious right in Italy. The only difference is in America, the religious right is largely Protestant evangelical with some Catholic footprint. In Italy, it is almost exclusively Catholic. Uh, Salvini uh, is now the object of two different uh, prosecutions uh, here in Italy related to his tenure as the country's interior minister when in the summer of 2019, in two very high-profile celebrated cases, Salvini refused to let humanitarian ships that had rescued refugees in the Mediterranean Sea, he refused to let them disembark in Italian ports in Sicily, forcing those refugees to remain on board for two, three weeks, almost a month, in sweltering August heat and miserable sanitary overcrowded conditions, that is unsanitary overcrowded conditions. Several of them became ill and had to be uh, medevaced uh, off those ships. Others in desperation threw themselves into the sea uh, in an effort to make it to shore. Uh, in the end, uh, deals were struck uh, that other European nations, and of course, because this is Italy, the Catholic Church, uh, agreed to take responsibility for these migrants, and Salvini finally let them off. Uh, he is now being charged with essentially criminal kidnapping, unlawful sequestration of people uh, by a court in the southern Italian, the Sicilian city of Catania. Uh, now, the prosecutor there has recommended the case be closed on the grounds that you can't prosecute a government official for acts they are carrying out as part of their official duties. Uh, but the prosecutor in Catania is, or the, rather the, the tribunal, uh, is charging that in this case, international human rights law, which obliges nation states to give safe harbor to refugees requesting asylum, uh, that that international law overrides the prerogatives of a national level minister and is charging Salvini with a crime. Uh, in coming days, the Italian prime minister, Giuseppe Conte, is going to be deposed uh, in this case. Two former ministers will be deposed. Now, formally speaking, the Catholic Church is not a party to it, but it is well known that both the Italian bishops and the Vatican were highly critical uh, of Salvini for his handling of these cases. The boats were called the Giorgetti and the Open Arms. Uh, and that, as I said, the solution in both of these cases 
involved the Catholic Church agreeing to take up the responsibility that Salvini was refusing to allow the Italian government to perform. Memorably, when the open arms finally was allowed to disembark in Sicily, some youth from Catholic Action, which is the main Catholic youth organization here, gathered as those migrants and refugees were disembarking, singing a hearty round of Bella Ciao to them, which is what Italians sing to their friends and their lovers when, when they come back from a long trip. It's how you make somebody feel at home. Uh, around here. So although the Catholic Church is not a party, uh, formally speaking, it will certainly be a very interested observer. Uh, and it is this case is important because it could set the first precedent anywhere in the world that a minister, uh, in effect the, a cabinet official in the United States, the equivalent thereto, uh, that a government minister has been charged not for violation of national law, but for violation of international law, and that could have a significant precedent-setting value. Finally, this week, if you read the Italian papers or if you watch Italian TV, the stories you are going to be seeing actually aren't about this court case. They're not about the messy situation with Donald Trump refusing to concede defeat in the 2020 election in America. They're not really even about the coronavirus pandemic. The big story in the Italian press this week has been the death of Paolo Rossi, or as the Italians called him, Pablito. A uh, famous Italian soccer player, uh, probably not the greatest uh, soccer player in Italian history. I mean, you could make a great case for that being Roberto Baggio or Paolo Melandri or Gianluigi Buffon, my personal favorite, Francesco Totti, because he played for Roma. Uh, but uh, Paolo Rossi is at the heart of the happiest memory that Italians probably have from the last 40 years. Uh, in 1982, he was the captain of the Italian soccer team uh, that won the World Cup. He scored three goals, uh, the hat trick, in an elimination game against Brazil, and he scored the first goal in the final against Germany. You have to remember, 1982 was a very bleak time in Italy. These were the Ani di Piombo, the years of lead. The country was racked with terrorism related to the Red Brigades, this left-wing radical organization that wanted to bring down the state. They had kidnapped the country's prime minister, Aldo Moro, uh, and executed him in 1978. This was the only time you have ever seen a pope in public curse God. Uh, St. Paul VI and, and Aldo Moro were childhood friends, and, and Paul VI went to San Giovanni Laterana, St. John Lateran, uh, and gave this impromptu meditation in a memorial service for Moro when he basically looked up to God and said, I was on my knees crying and begging you, why didn't you help my friend? Uh, it, it, was, it was a scarring, emotional, awful time. Italy was also in the grip of a, of a massive economic recession and on and on. And in that one brief shining moment in 1982, Paolo Rossi put on the blue shirt for the Italian soccer team. He waved his magic wand and he brought a nation that was on its knees back to life with full-throated, unadulterated, undiluted national joy. And so his death this week was bittersweet. It meant the loss of a hero, sure, but it also meant for another brief shining moment at another dark time in the grip of a pandemic and its economic consequences, political instability, and on and on, that every Italian was reminded that we are still capable of joy. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a lesson 
the importance of which hardly ends at the borders of the Italian peninsula. All right, that's it for this week. Please join us next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy and happy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and I will talk to you again soon.